Hello and welcome to Movies on the Side. This is Stephen Robles. And this is Nate Baranowski. And this week we had a very special guest come on the show to discuss the 1982 movie, The King of Comedy. We bring on video renaissance man Adam Lissagor to discuss this movie in great detail. Neither Nate nor I had ever heard or seen The King of Comedy before reviewing it on this episode. We discuss Robert De Niro's performance, we discuss all the side characters, we discuss everything. And without further ado, here's the king of comedy on Movies on the Side. Adam Lissagor, you are with us today. Thank you so much. Yay! That's it. Bring in your own fanfare. That's right. <laughs> it's my late night um, backup band. Oh, that's I, right. I was trying to do kind of a Carson-y, kind of a Jerry Jerry kind of Lawler. Jerry Lang- a Langford. Langford, <laughs> Langford thing. It is yeah. amazing to have you on here, Adam. In your own Wikipedia article, which I have perused, Inc. Magazine has called you the Martin Scorsese of online video advertising. Yeah. <laughs> and so it is amazing that we are doing a Scorsese movie this week. I'm sure Stephen has some actual intro things he wants to say. He's usually the buttoned up one of the <laughs> two right. of us. Hit it. Well, this week we're doing a movie. I don't know if it's from 1982 or three because IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes now have a discrepancy. I, everywhere I've seen is 1982. We're doing the 1982 movie starring Robert De Niro called The King of Comedy. Now, I will be honest, I won't speak for Nate, but I had not heard of this movie nor ever seen it before. So this was a first viewing for me. But Adam, you said this is kind of one of your... I don't know, you would enjoy talking about it. Can you just share what your history is with this? Like, well, how did you get exposed to it and where did it come from? So I'm 42. I was born in 1978. So I kind of got my film education while I was in high school and pre-internet days. So I, my, my film education was going to the Blockbuster video, mm. loading up on tapes that I would be curious about, not going for the, you know, the outer shelves, the perimeter where all of the... um the hits were the blockbusters where they would have like 12 of the same movie, mm-hmm. but going into the inner shelves, you know, going to the classics, going to the foreigns, the indies and picking out something from maybe, you know, everybody knew who Scorsese was, but maybe finding some of his earlier work. And I kind of knew at that point that I wanted to go to study film in New York. That's pretty much hand in glove fit there. I wanted to, I had seen mean streets. I'd seen Goodfellas, I'd seen all of the, the Scorsese canon but I was really curious about this interest. Like, I think I saw a reference to it called The King of Comedy. It's like funny. It's weird. <laughs> and I just decided to check it out. But it's one of those movies. I don't know if you've ever been exposed to a movie that smacks you straight in the forehead. Oh, unexpected. Man. You're not, you know, you're not, you, you're not prepared for it emotionally, mentally. And it just knocks you straight on your butt. And this was one of those. I don't, and so I'm assuming that I saw it at some point in the early 90s, and I never forgot it. But it's one of those movies I've seen probably a dozen times now, and every time you go back and, and revisit it, it means something different to you. But your prompt was, Stephen, that I should maybe propose a disaster movie or just a bad movie. <laughs> and this movie is neither of those necessarily. <laughs> Although there's a case to be made that it is a disaster movie. Financially. Right, right, right. <laughs> Financially, it's a disaster movie. Also, psychologically. <laughs> Logically a disaster movie, oh my but it is indisputably not a bad movie. It's some critics' minds, it's one of the best 
American movies ever made. So for Nate and I, we're watching this much later in life. So you watch this at an as an adolescent? How did that hit you? Um, it was weird, but I was kind of open-minded in that time of my life where I, I knew like as a person, as a, you know, early artist, I was pretty different from the kids I went to school with. So I was kind of hungry for less conventional mm. me- media. It, and this was actually like, people probably don't give it enough credit for the time. I don't know when you guys came of age, but the early 90s was a fairly experimental time in in, in media. And there was like a lot of room for some weird stuff. Um, <laughs> I don't know. M- MTV had this show called Liquid Television at the time, which was like a half an hour of experimental animation. It was like pre-Adult Swim and it was the weirdest, most challenging. You know, there was just there was a lot more room for weirdness and stretching in uh, stretching artistically in different ways. Yeah, and I think that that was still a holdover from this. If I'm being honest, I think it was a holdover from the from the 70s, where American cinema embraced weirdness, right? Um, embraced individuality, and then the early 80s came out. And Spielberg basically destroyed everything. <laughs> uh, and film became tentpoles and franchise and all of the weirdness got smoothed out of the system. Um, but that's what's interesting about this movie for me. Now, Nate, you had not seen this before yet either, right? And did you have any expectations? I had no idea what to expect from this movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had yeah, I had never heard of it before. I was born in 88, and I would say that my adolescence was mostly marked by not watching any movie that existed before the year 1985, uh, living somewhat of a sheltered childhood. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm spending most of my adulthood trying to go back and scoop up a lot of missing movies that when people said, you know, just like that scene in Scarface and I'm just, I nod and go, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I know right. bits and pieces from just the cultural touchstones sure and sometimes that's all you need to know to be honest to get up mm. to have like the proper generalized film education you don't need to go and actually watch scarface because you know tony montana <laughs> you know say hello to my little friend it's like right. the cliff's notes of tri- or trivial pursuit version right i've seen the yeah i've seen the scenes yeah i, I yes. can't do the book the book report but yeah exactly so i got to i got to this movie and i tell you what I'm really happy that I saw it today as a 32-year-old man because (laughs) I really, like, I'm not sure if 12-year-old me would have enjoyed this movie at all, (laughs) but 32-year-old me, well... I don't. I still don't know if I enjoy this movie, but I appreciated this movie. <laughs> so we play a little game sometimes at the beginning of the show. We guess the Rotten Tomato score. And you also said that this was problematic for Martin Scorsese's career. So I'd love to hear about that too. But do you know what this is Rotten Tomato scored, Adam? I have no, no, I don't. Like I don't actually often look at a Rotten Tomatoes score. I used to sort of check out Metacritic sometimes. I don't know. I just don't pay enough attention to know. Are you going to say it now? Or are we going to wait? Are we going to? Are we going to? No, no, no. We'll we'll say it now. Oh, okay. I was going to see if you had a wild guess. I'm a, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess. Okay, go for it, Nate. Okay, I'm gonna say that critics were at like. 84% Rotten Tomatoes. That's my guess. <laughs> That's high. It is high. I'm going to say like th- I'm going to say 39. Really? Ooh. Well, and that, this is also one of the prob- problematic things is I don't know if Rotten Tomatoes rates it much after the film release with a film this age. So critics, the score on Rotten Tomatoes is 89%. 
Oh, wow. Whoa. Fantastic. The audience score is 90. Whoa. So almost exactly even between the two. So again, I don't know when this was rated. It seems to be well-received now, today. But you said this was problematic for Scorsese. How was that? Well, it, it almost ruined, it almost killed his career because he had, and this, I'm just pulling this from trivia on IMDb, but he he basically had a couple of what they would call flops. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you put, if you call Raging Bull a flop, then you know, you're, can I say can I say swears on this show? I'll probably bleep it out, but you can say it. Oh, okay. He's a butthead. Uh, like if it, <laughs> That's better. If it, anybody who's anybody who calls uh, Raging Bull a flop is a butthead. So, um, <laughs> because Raging Bull is an unqualified work of of cinematic genius, and I and so then I think probably what happened was Scorsese had a crisis of identity. Mm. And he made he made a movie called New York, New York in the late seventies, and he made Raging Bull, and neither of those were financial successes. And then he and then they spent nineteen million dollars making this movie, The King of Comedy, with De Niro, and he put a lot into it. And it was a really grueling process to get into the emotional meal of this of this these characters. Hmm. And he came out of it totally spent, thinking that he'd created a masterwork and then it was a financial failure as well and he was basically at that point kind of on the brink of director jail <laughs> so imagine if that had been the end of martin scorsese and there there had right. been no goodfellas <laughs> there'd been no casino say what you will about the irishman and all of the later works but like gangs of new york was good yes um that one too I've, aviator those guys all those things, all the great shows. But 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 what's really fun is that like I had I had never seen his follow up movie after the King of Comedy when he was going through his crisis of identity, and it's called After Hours in 1985. Hmm. And I watched it just a couple of weeks ago. I'm sort of obsessed with the year 1985 right now. Hmm. So I put it on, and it's this super weird like of the moment one night in New York kind of story where a bunch of stuff goes wrong, and it's awesome and weird and and it was a pet project it was like a very low budget sort of no name actors or like marginal actors and it basically just rejiggered his whole attitude about making movies and that ended up being an indie darling like a, a critical success that put him on the right path again hmm. now i think that in his body of work personally i consider the king of comedy his best his best work okay so the movie opens the king of comedy and we see Jerry Lewis playing the character Jerry Langford, famous talk show host. And he leaves, you know, exiting out the backstage door. And there's just this incredible crowd of people flocking, going crazy. And we see Robert De Niro bouncing around, trying to play cool, but also trying to get to him. <laughs> you know, he's painting this picture that Jerry Langford, the character, is just this incredibly famous person. And I don't know if we have that kind of context today. Like, I don't know if Jimmy Fallon would get mobbed outside of a talk show host. But if, even for me, it I don't know if it seemed over the top, but it was a little weird first scene. But I don't know. What, what did you think, Nate? Because you were watching the first time. It set the tone of, oh, this movie is going to be a little different than what I expected it, <laughs> uh, especially when it, uh, Masha's the one who's who gets in the car and is like right. smashing it, and it looks more like a walk, a Walking Dead uh, start of a movie, <laughs> and and then it freezes yes. to her hands on the window, and that that's just <laughs> credits the whole way. I was like, 
oh, we're in for it here. This is this is going in. Yeah, you're in. You're in. Strap in because you're going to go into a place. And and it's like that freeze frame of her hands on the window yes. with Rupert looking in the window. And um, it's in. It's when a flash bulb has just gone off. So the it's even more surreal. The scene is now lit by a flash, and you hold on that as these super stylized, blocky, <laughs> you know, pretty modern designed titles come up and list the credits and everything. While um, Ray Charles, yes, <laughs> come rain or come shine, plays right. The title slowly drops in from the top too, which yeah, it takes, exactly. I feel, like it, I feel like it takes a full five minutes for the title just to drop. Right. Well, because back then, like in the olden days, people had patience for such things. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I love that. You know, you had to savor it. And one other thing I wanted to mention is at the very beginning of the movie, it starts, we we, we come in on the TV show, uh, on mm-hmm, Jerry Langford's right. TV show. We don't start with the movie. And little old me, Ed Hurley. And now, say hello to Jerry. And that, um, that separate, or that distinction between film and network TV is made clear very, very quickly in the same way that I don't know if you have you guys heard or seen of a movie called Network from the late seventies. No, no. Um, there's so the old movie called Network about a a newscaster an an old seasoned newscaster who kind of fed up with the state of the world and goes haywire on air. <laughs> and the famous line is, "I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore." Oh. And it became this rallying, you know, post Nixon uh, rallying cry for <laughs> the. The, the rapid decay of, of culture in this or in this of civilization in, in the US. But so much of that story is played out through network TV and the aesthetics of, of, of network television. And it's so like crucially important that they shot the Jerry Langford show like they would shoot an actual late night program in, in the early 80s. Hmm, right. Aesthetically, it made all the difference because it brings you into that world right away. Right. I even had the thought of, oh, this is, is this actually going to be Jerry Lewis playing Jerry Lewis and coming out on some right. show? Right. <laughs> because I, at that point in time, I was like, maybe he's playing himself. But it really takes you right into that like late night talk show. Yeah, you're in the world. Like right away, you're in the world. And then crucially... When you're out of the world, there's not that much separation. You there's there's a, a really fine blending of TV world and and Rupert world, hmm. film world, and and it jumps back and forth between reality and fantasy quite um, deftly. Stephen, can I ask you a question? Yes. When when I proposed the King of Comedy, and you maybe look you know, Googled it and looked at a poster, you know the poster image or something. What did you expect that the movie was going to be? I have no idea. I think when I searched it, I saw like a two line synopsis. Mm-hmm. Which was basically like Rupert Pupkin wants to be on a talk show, so he kidnaps Jerry Langford and holds him for ransom to be on a show. Like that was the whole synopsis. That's it. That was it. That's it. And back in 1982, you could sell a movie like that. You could. Sell, that was the. That's the logline. So you go into the executive, you know, studio executive's office, and you say some weird idea like. Is, you know, a guy kidnaps a late night host so he can be a famous comedian. Right. And they're like, it's weird. It's sticky. It's got criminal element. I love it. <laughs> well, and it's it was so bizarre because after reading that two-line synopsis kind of by accident, because I don't like sometimes going knowing what's in the movie before I see it, I was kind of waiting for the kidnapping the whole time mm-hmm. and expected Robert De Niro's character to kind of be menacing. <laughs> and we could talk about how he turns out later in the movie, but it's weird because in the first scene – you know, he's playing it cool, but you can also, in the big crowd, you understand that he doesn't have the social norm 
radar to understand like you can't get in the car with Jerry Lewis. <laughs> but he also like works out this plot with the girl, which I don't know the relationship with the girl. I don't know if it's just a random friend or what. But to like work that out where she's going crazy. Robert De Niro can look like he's helping Jerry Langford and then just get in the car with him. It's like, okay, he's a little off. He doesn't get exactly what's happening here, but he also has enough wits to get himself in the car with Jerry Langford. And I was like, yeah, he doesn't seem that crazy, at least yet. Well, I I would argue with you on that point. I think he seems super crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. I am with you. I did not know what where this movie was going. I did not see a single line on it. And when he got in the car and started doing his thing, I think to the wonderful the acting chops of Robert De Niro, there is a type of like slightly out of hinge that he comes across where I definitely had the thought like, Jerry, Jerry, get him out of the car. Do not let him go back (laughs) to your apartment. And this is before I knew anything about this movie. And it comes across so aggressively like pitching himself that I was uncomfortable, which I think can be said for 90% of this movie. I watched it wanting to kind of look a little bit to the right of the screen so I could kind of absorb it with my peripheral right. vision, <laughs> yeah. but not actually like look at it straight on because it's a lot. Well, because what this film does is it sets your expectations and then it subverts them mm. over and over and over and over again. And whatever you were expecting in the beginning, like let's, you know, in context of movies in that time, in like, let's say the early or 80s, you know, 80s comedies, it was a common trope that like, you know, a funny comedian of the day goes in and goes, does some sort of an ambush or a heist or something and like has to rescue his family by hijacking a car salesman or something stupid <laughs> like that. You know, mm-hmm. John Candy, Bill Murray, like all those guys, Chevy Chase, they would all do these, this type of movie. So you're, you're sort of maybe if you read the log line that a comedian hijacks or kidnaps a late night host, that's maybe what you're ex- expecting. What you're not expecting is there's a whole, like a whole exploration of of mental illness at play that you really have to come to grips with very quickly. And at its core, this film is about mental illness. Right. And how our society, I guess, treats mental illness or... Struggles to deal with. Yeah, struggles to deal with it. Exactly. That's it. It's weird because in the car, Jerry Lewis is actually very gracious in like the conversation. Like he even says like, take your time. You know, you're very nervous. You know, just- right. Cause he's a huckster. <laughs> he's a showman and he's trying to get something. He's a sociopath. And I love this one line that they say in the car where Pupkin says, I'm at the bottom. And Jerry says, Oh, it's a perfect place to start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got to start at the bottom. I know that's where I am at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. But then when he gets to the apartment, if I thought there was any normalcy to Robert De Niro's character in the car, <laughs> once he won't let Jerry Lewis get in the building, like he keeps going back, he can't say goodbye. I was like, okay, something is definitely off here, more even than I suspected originally. Yeah, totally. And I think that a lot of that is cultural context too. I think that that kind of a social interaction, as weird as it is and awkward as it is, I think it was probably a little bit more normal back then than it mm. than it is now. Mm. And especially in that part of the world, like I lived in New York for a while and people are a little bit different in the big city. And early 80s New York City was gross and dirty and f- mm. full of animal depravity, <laughs> you know, like not to be judgmental <laughs> about it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not casting judgment on it. I'm just saying that was, that's the nature of what that, that time and place was. Yeah. And so I don't think it was that uncommon to come across that level of aggressive, yeah. aggressive social interaction. 
and you you're you're there's this dynamic at play where you're meant to empathize with both characters at the same time and and you're always being pulled between you know empathizing with all the characters in a very interesting way i even find myself projecting you know my own past with being in a desperate situation where you're trying to like let's say you apply for a job and you really Mm -hmm. want the job or or a date and you really want to Mm -hmm. or you know a girl that you or you know a person that you want to um uh, you you want to you have romantic interest in and you don't know what level of um, aggressiveness to apply <laughs> and I think that this is just we're watching somebody who doesn't have as much of a filter right for yeah. that aggressiveness. It's actually a brilliant way to show someone who desperately wants something because it is super relatable to all of us of this like you know we have that most of us have that voice inside that's like all right don't play it cool and don't be too, you know, like I desperately want this person to see my portfolio or I really want this, you know, I really want this particular person to notice me, but I can't come across as too desperate. And what we see is Rupert who with none of that, uh, yeah, like you said, none of that filter there that says like, none of the decorum. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Hey, stop, stop, stop. You're actually, they're getting uncomfortable now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's super relatable. And speaking of people that I relate to, and I think we have to talk about in a second, I think the assistant Kathy Long is a saint. (laughs) And I think she has the type of patience in this movie that I, I want to give her some sort of award for right you are the best and so gracious well i'll tell you what as soon as you do start working again why don't you uh, give us a call and we'll send someone down to check out your act all right thanks so much jerry and i went over all this last night does jerry know you yes i don't think he does she's so gracious and she's so elegant and sophisticated and like she was everything that i feel like a certain type of like sophisticated New York elegance and femininity was at that point. Mm. Like the way she dresses, the way that her, her long, you know, her clothes just like see, easily drape uh, on her, like, you know, her thin frame and, and her hair is like that, you know, TV commercial yeah. shampoo hair. And the way she talks is just so refined and she puts him at ease, <laughs> even though as, even as he's like being voraciously, you know, aggressively needy towards her. Yeah, right. she was um one of Charlie's angels in the ladies in the later uh-huh. series. I, I oh, okay, I did not know this. So af- after that scene on the stairs, Jerry Lewis is going in. You know, you do feel that you know Rupert thinks he's getting closer to what he wants, but we know as viewers, Jerry Lewis has no intention of ever right. <laughs> listening to him again. But then we go into this weird, which you had mentioned before, is where it blurs the lines of Rupert's fantasy. Mm-hmm. And we see scenes of like him having lunch with Jerry Lewis and all right. this stuff. Can I quote a line really quick as we as you bridge over into that next scene? Yeah. Because uh, I wrote it down and I put an asterisk, asterisk by it. And um, Rupert Pupkin says in that awkward exchange in front of his apartment, he says, I'm a little short on cash, but if you don't mind just appetizers, I'd love to take you to dinner sometime. <laughs> yes. What a beautiful oh, line that is. Man. Right? I'm a little short on cash, but if you don't mind just appetizers, I'd love to take you to dinner sometime. He has no idea how to conduct himself in this <laughs> in this act of social, uh, you know, social graciousness. Is like, you know, Jerry, <laughs> it's oh, so beautiful. And, and then we seamlessly cut to that imagined lunch that they're having, right? Right, and took a second for me to realize that this is not real. And then, you know, every other scene after it, because we have lots of these fake, you know, fantasies for Robert De Niro's character. But what I think is so interesting is shortly after that, Robert De Niro, he's having his fantasy. 
And then we see Jerry Langford in his apartment. He gets a prank call from the lady. And it's this dichotomy of, you know, Pupkin idolizing the life that this talk show host has and how amazing it would be. And then we see Jerry Langford and all he wants to do is like chill out and he has to deal with a prank phone caller (laughs) in his apartment. And it's like, Robert De Niro's character doesn't understand what that life actually is. Yeah, absolutely. He has to project project it all from his his very minimal exposure to it. And this was a time also. Remember, this is like no Instagram. Very, you know, you <laughs> right. know, they people collected autographs back then. There was no selfies. You know, like there there was <laughs> right. it was it was so weird. And there was this different type of celebrity worship. And that's why going back to your original question of how plausible is it that. Jimmy Fallon walks out of the backstage and is swamped with adoring fans. I think it's pretty plausible. First of all, back then it would be like if those adoring fans had literally no way of engaging, there's no parasocial relationship hmm. with with their celebrity crushes. They have to go there and sort of be there in person or watch them on the show. Hmm. And I think that 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 becomes plausible. Also, it's very concerning how little security there <laughs> there is. Oh man, <laughs> like one guy. <laughs> one yeah. dude. Yeah, one guy who doesn't look very good at his job. No. One dude. I have a question for both of you. And this is a <laughs> I want to pause and ask a somewhat personal question. Oh my. And that is this. It's a little would you rather y. <laughs> Between a pre social media era where you could get mugged for an autograph or like that lady later on saying, I wish you had cancer on the street. Ooh. Oh yeah. Yeah, so which came from a real, um, a real interaction Jerry Lewis had, by the way. Oh, wow. it, man, it it really made me be like, man, I never want to be, I never want to be famous. <laughs> okay, so my question is, does that level of there's a mystique and people want to see you in person, uh, so you have to deal with all of that? Would you rather be that kind of famous or modern 2020? trolls on twitter and the kind of a bunch of dms on your instagram from people you don't know what would be uh the lesser of two evils and i would also yeah what the lesser of two evils or or what do you think you would rather handle is that people on the internet or people in person gathering outside your townhouse Wait, you, Stephen, you answer first. <laughs> I would have to say I would much rather deal with the internet trolls, as we will later see you have risk of being kidnapped and ransomed by some person that wants to be on your show. Yeah, but assuming uh, assuming that it's rare enough that they made a movie about it in this That's one. True. Right. That's true. Right. What are the odds? <laughs> I, I mean, me being an internet person, you know, I enjoy the internet and, and all that. I would take the bad with the good and I would go for the more modern. Yeah. I'm going to give the opposite answer. I would much prefer the detachment. I'm a believer in the, in the power of the internet, yeah. but I also believe that, you know, especially in the last few years, we've seen how destructive it can be. Mm-hmm. So I much prefer to go back to a pre-digital, you know, more physical analog version of celebrity. Uh, it just feels... It's more illusory, but it feels safer to mm. me. Until yeah. two people show up at your house. <laughs> yeah, but you can handle them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That butler didn't handle them, I'll tell you that. Yeah, that guy was great. So after these fantasy scenes, now we see Robert De Niro's character going to the office, seeming like every day. Right, because Jerry promises him to basically get him off of his, get get him to go away. He says, right. just, you know, call my office, talk to Kathy Long. <laughs> right. And I wasn't sure like how long we could stay in this office scene and it still be engaging. 
but there's this incredible tension that starts building mm. after every interaction that Robert De Niro has with a different person, <laughs> like whether it's the assistant or the receptionist and then the security guard. Like there's this building tension that you feel Robert De Niro becoming more and more unhinged, like you said, Nate. Yes. And you're just like, what is going to happen? And I have to say, this is a bit of an old man get off my lawn moment, but the difference between a movie that can take its time, like a, like like this one, versus a modern movie this is the difference between us really sitting with him in the reception area and as every second of him passing glances with the receptionist at the desk (laughs) it's more and more uncomfortable and more and more a feeling of like he is not supposed to be here i start feeling a little bit of waves of anxiety of like (laughs) oh this is not good their graciousness is running out and i can feel it stretching whereas my guess would be that a, a modern movie in the you know in the last five years would make this a very fast montage Mm. that would just be like showing him going in like it would get get across the same message that he's always there Mm. uh, and then he would be leaving and and saying hi to the same person and maybe it would even be shown as like a comedic like it's pupkin it's pupkin and he would do some sort of repeat (laughs) this one really takes its time and it's better for it because it is a slow process yeah absolutely because modern filmmaking or modern modern media has to prioritize the efficiency of communicating an idea hmm. because we, well for many reasons but aesthetic reasons but I think mostly it's um due to an awareness of our of our short attention spans and you know hmm. media has to do everything it can to capture our attention quickly hmm. and convey what we need to know right away but in the olden days <laughs> you know, people didn't, people were going to sit there in the theater and, and, you know, just put them, put them in a situation and let them feel what they're going to feel. And I think Scorsese is the, is such a master at creating a landscape where the emotional emotionality can sort of like unfold on its own. Mm. And they're not, he's not telling you what to think or feel. He's not, he's not indicating for you to get it over with quicker that you're supposed to feel tense and awkward. He's putting the camera and the characters in this situation and letting them play at each other. Hmm. And then you feel what you're going to feel because it is because he earns it. Right. And, and like, it's, it's refreshing to see that kind of thing. If you, if you can withstand it, you know, if at this point in time in the movie, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Steven, as, as watching it for the first time, do you like Rupert? <laughs> is he likable to you? <laughs> You know, it's, he's funny sometimes, whether he intends to be or not. Like, there's a line I wanted to pull. Like, <laughs> even the character name Rupert Pupkin, like, I've struggled to even say it as we record, and I have it written. It's right in front of me, but it's such a good name. And there's a line where Robert De Niro says, it's usually mispronounced and misspelled. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <laughs> this guy's pretty funny. Pupkin, P-U-P-K-I-N. People often misspell it and mispronounce it. But also he doesn't know he doesn't know that his name is funny either. I think he just right. because it's somebody asks him what's his real name and he says, That is my real name. <laughs> right. Right. And I unaware. As he's like doing going back and forth to this office, I oh I admire somewhat his drive to succeed. And I feel like in today's culture, that's kind of what you're told you need to have. Like you need to have that nonstop persistence whether it's posting a hundred times a day, like you have to be on it all the time. 
and almost not pay attention to how many likes you're not getting. You know, you have to just keep doing it. Yeah. So what you're saying is Rupert Pupkin is going to crush it. <laughs> In 2020, he might crush it. I don't know. Yeah. He's on his grind. He's definitely persistent. I would say that I don't like him. And I don't think the, the audience is meant to like him. But at the end, there's there's sort of um there's a moment where we realize who this guy is. And then we feel for him, at least, you know? Yeah. You understand why he's this way. Yeah. Right. There's a a bit of understanding, like you said earlier, Adam, the the theme of mental illness. And I think as it circles back around to where his delusions or his fantasies really influence, I think for me, it happened when he went to Jerry's house uh, (laughs) with Rita. And like, at some point in time, you go like, oh, no, this is too far. Like truly harmful for you and it circles back to <laughs> sympathetic in a way but i never quite got back to likability but it it was a, a really interesting tension of like yeah man this is i feel for the people that have been uh, hurt because of you but i also know like you can't help it yeah yeah i'll circle back around to my feelings about him because I feel like the last monologue shapes so much. Like it's the last thing you see of him. And so I don't know, that shaped my thought. But one before we get to him going to Jerry Lewis's house, I just want to point out the scene where he's trying to make his demo tape <laughs> because the assistant tells him, like, just, just bring a tape. And, you know, it's like the the canonical, like, oh, yeah, send your tape. We'll, we'll listen to it. And his mom's, like, yelling from the upstairs who we never see. We never see her face. Always hears her voice. It's just a – I don't know. You feel the tension even in that Play, scene. Played by Martin Scorsese's real mom. Yes. Brother, oh. Who was also in Goodfellow. <laughs> so good. In the new Rupert. king of comedy. Rupert, are you crazy? Hey, What's hello, the matter with you? Yeah, I mean, because he lives in his mom's basement. I don't know if you t- right. tend to enumerate plot points as you as you go through your episodes, but Rupert Pupper, Pupkin is a very desperate. It's usually mispronounced and misspelled. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. He's a sad character that has set up a whole sort of mock mock set for himself, like a late night show f- um, for himself, complete with cardboard cutout celebrities in the basement. Oof. And Liza Minnelli's there. <laughs> Liza's there. Dr. <laughs> Joyce Brothers is there. You know, all of the celebrities of the day. And it's it's so exciting to see this guy sort of desperately craft this fictionalized world around himself because this is his obsession. Yeah. And I think that that's, what, that's why I forget who asked, why do he and Masha know each other? Well, because they're similarly fixated on this mm. one guy. They're both in the same right. fan club. Right. And they sort of rely on and depend on each other for that. I don't think they like each other at all. Right. But they need each other because they're similarly, similarly obsessed with the same thing. There's a line early in the movie when they're all in that big crowd and Robert De Niro says, it's not my whole life. It's not my whole life. Like, yeah. <laughs> trying to make her feel bad. Yeah, I'm really not that interested. It's not my whole life. What's that supposed to mean? That's my whole life, Mayor Sidney? It's not my whole life. Yeah, he's he goes. I'm not wacko like you. Right. Yeah, like she's he, she's like an aware stalker, and he's in like completely not self aware. Right, because right. he's a he his his version of himself is that he's a careerist. He's on the path to something great, and he doesn't realize how delusional that really is. And then this movie unfolds as though it wasn't delusional at all. Right. Which yeah, and I I want to talk about the ending later. I think actually before they even get to. Jerry Langford's house. We're talking about Rita, aren't we? Well, we talk about Rita. <laughs> so the one, yeah, the one character we haven't talked about yet, Rita. Which I honestly wasn't sure if she was real or not. 
for maybe half the movie. Yeah. I just, I, I didn't know, like, is, was, is someone actually talking to him in real life? Or is this a fantasy also? But I guess this is like, I don't know, friend, romantic interest. She was his high school crush. That's right. And I think that's that's the moment where you sort of first get a glimpse into his psychology, which is that holds on to this time of his life um, in a very strong way. Like he has mm. almost, it's it's almost an arrested development. Mm. He has, he mm. kind of has stunted past the, his, his high school. You don't quite know why, but you know, it can't be good. Right. Right. You can imagine, I, and I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to take a stab. Have you ever known somebody who was a little bit off in ways that you couldn't piece together, but reminded you a little bit of Rupert Pupkin? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And again, no judgment. Um, it it is what it is, and it takes all kinds. But I've I've known people like this that similarly obsess with a time in their life that they can't seem to have mentally moved past. And I think that when you start to understand that he, the first thing that happens, the first thing that Rupert does when he's hit this big break, which is that he got in a car with Jerry mm. and was told to go, you know, call his office is that he goes to where he knows his high school crush was. Right. And he tells her, I'm going to take you out of this place and I'm going to turn your life around. You know, he's got this whole fantasy that was waiting to un- to develop um, until this particular moment of his of his career, his imagined career. And and then you start to piece together how sad that is. Right. You know, basically she's an aunt. He's an aunt to Rita, who was, by the way, played by Robert De Niro's actual wife at the time. Wow. It sounds wonderful, Rupert, and I wish you the best of luck, you know? But it's getting late, and I'm a working girl. I gotta go home. I, I don't get you. Here I am offering you a way out. I, I did have a question about Rita in this, because in some ways, I feel like she doesn't give him the time of day, or they have that, that sit-down, and he does kind of his old his old stuff where he has his own autograph, and she's like, ugh, you're the same as you were back in high school. Right. That stunted growth. But then uh-huh. at that time where they when they do start going on this trip to go see Jerry, she seems a little bit more into him again. And I wasn't quite sure. Sh- I couldn't quite read Rita as to <laughs> does she actually like Rupert? No, no, she doesn't like him at all. But she's humoring him and she's kind of fascinated. And I think that there are little hints at her character that she's the kind of person that will go along. Mm. Right. She's just kind of curious. And she's kind of thrilled a little bit that she gets to go and potentially meet a famous person. Right. Yeah, that's true. That would be a bit of a draw. <laughs> in talking about being like stuck in the high school phase, when he has the fantasy of marrying Rita on the Jerry Langford show. Yeah. And it's just so, it's bizarre. But when they step up to the priest guy or whoever's about to marry him, it's his high school, what was it? It was a high school. It's old principal. Oh, it's old principal. old principal. Yeah, George Cap. Who's now a justice of the peace. Like if you were <laughs> literally, if if you're 11 years old and you're thinking like, what's the best way that I could show everybody who doubts me that I'm the king of the world? That's probably something you come up with is that yeah. your high school principal has to apologize to you or, you know, mm-hmm. your junior high principal <laughs> has to apologize to you on air and then marry you to your sweetheart. Right. We'd like to apologize to you personally and to beg your forgiveness for for all the things we did to you. And we'd like to thank you personally, all of us, for the meaning you've given our lives. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I feel like, at least when you're in high school and maybe shortly after, you hope that that 
might actually happen at least from one person. Like maybe it's the one guy who bullied you <laughs> or the one person who treated you wrong. Like you think maybe one day they'll see the error of their ways and I'll somehow communicate. They'll see my success. They'll see my success, but I'll somehow be able to communicate how they hurt me and they will genuinely apologize. I think as we move past high school, for most of us moving into college and into early careers, uh, not to get too sappy and deep in this moment, <laughs> mm-hmm. but... I really think there's something relatable that we all have this hope that like the people that doubted us that we don't need to like we grow past the need for them to make an apology for us. But there is like that part of me (laughs) that I can relate to, man, I hope they see that I'm doing well or, you know, an ex-girlfriend or somebody is like, oh. I kind of hope that they see that I am happy <laughs> and they go, oh, right. what a catch. Right. I missed out on him or, oh, I guess he did have a lot of potential deep inside. That superlative wasn't meaningless. I think that I think that in Rupert's case, though, he needs everybody to feel bad, like for what they had done to him, because it's clear that he's been damaged in a, in a lot of yeah. big ways. But that he ties it all to his high school days. And in very early in the movie, when he... When he like chases uh, Jerry down in front of his apartment and says, we're going to have lunch. I'm going to take you to lunch. And then we cut to fantasy lunch. The very first thing that he's imagining for his, his own story of this lunch is that Jerry is now less than him. Like Rupert mm-hmm. is the more famous one. And Jerry is in a place where his career is going south. And he's just like, Rupert, <laughs> teach me the way. Right. And so it's not you, – you sort of like get a, a real – clear sense of his motivations very strongly it's not that he idolizes or worships jerry he actually resents him Mm. and he thinks he's better than him yeah that makes it even more creepy it's creepy it's it's really creepy stuff so we make it to jerry langford's house where rupert pupkin brings rita and basically not breaks in but lets themselves in past the butler Jono? was that his name Jono, yes yes and you know from the moment they step in the house like this is not going to end well you kind of have the sinking feeling the whole time and eventually rupert's like rita don't touch that you know oh don't go upstairs you know we're not invited and you could tell like even he understands this is probably a mistake and when Jerry Langford walks into that house, his stone face for the first like 10 minutes of yeah. the conversation. It's gold. It's gold. Carrying, it. ca- carrying the putter. Yeah. <laughs> and those short shorts. The short shorts. God, he just wants to get away for his weekend in his country home. <laughs> and now he has to deal with this crap. <laughs> and oh, this is oh, perfect. And the, and the like that everybody's thinking, everybody's in a completely different reality in that scene. And that Rita is still under the impression that this is all a legit, you know, right, that, right. that they're in, they're invited guests and it's just all, all the little details. Apparently that scene took five days to shoot. Oh my goodness. Um, one of my favorite details is at the beginning when they're on the ferry, uh, Jerry and Rita are on the ferry coming to go visit Jerry. And she says, what do you think of my wig? Cause she's got a wig over her right. natural hair and he's, he doesn't like the wig. And it's this first, it's almost like that first signal that this is not going to go, this is not going according to his plan. Mm-hmm. Do I look okay? You look wonderful. Does this look all right? That I'm not sure about, but you look wonderful. What do you mean? No, you look wonderful. It's just like a little tiny character detail that puts you in his emotional state of dissatisfaction. The world is never going to live up to his fantasy version of it. Pumpkin, they're yelling at this point, and he yells at Jerry, I made a mistake. And then Jerry Langford says, so did Hitler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then we finally get to 
the kidnapping. You know, this is three quarters of the way through the movie. Having been the first line in the synopsis, I was like, you know, waiting for this the whole time. Strange kidnapping scene. And then like, it really feels bad. Like it does not feel great having Jerry Langford tied up. I disagree, Stephen, because at this point in time is when I had my first audible chuckle of the movie, (laughs) which is when he ties up Jerry a lot. And there's just the physical comedy of Jerry tied to a chair with a ton of tape. With tape, yeah, with paper tape. Yeah, that physical comedy, just that moment of him just stone-faced, like, I can't believe this is happening to me by these two people. He's just, that's what he's upset about, is just the inconvenience of this whole thing (laughs) by these two idiots. He's not not fearing for his life. No, he's not. The cue card reading was hilarious. I'll give you that. And, you know, like, he holds one upside down, one's backwards. Go back, go back one. Just real quick, again, there's this bridge moment between between the scene at the house where they get kicked out and then the kidnapping, um, which is, again, it's another Scorsese slash Thelma Schoonemacher, the editor, this, this signature technique. And I, in my notes, I put that this is the disaster. This is, if this is a disaster movie (laughs) where they get kicked out of the country home, that's the disaster. And then the next thing you see is a close up of a gun. Yes. You know, it's just like, you know, other movies wouldn't do this. Other movies would sort of like transition from one idea to the next in a more <laughs> methodical sort of story shaping way. Uh, but this is just like smash cut to gun. <laughs> and then they're outside. They're they're in the car. They're waiting for Jerry to come out. And Masha says something so cool, which speaks to his, her, you know, her obsession, which is when it's him, it doesn't look like him. <laughs> right. Sure, I'm sure. It looks too much like him. I have to go back real quick to another moment that maybe you guys can speak to why it's so good because I can't quite put my finger on it. But when he is rehearsing his monologue and he's in front of that black and white crowd and he, he does this. Iconic. He does this. His, he starts his routine. You can kind of hear it. But behind him is just a swelling wall of laughter that does not yeah. have natural breaks. It's just, uh, right. and I wrote down in my notes, heroin. <laughs> there is some, and as the, as the camera pulls back while he's talking in front, I was like, this is the most unnerved I've been this whole time. I'm not exactly sure why, but I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on that. It was an amazing just visual. Yeah. You know, it almost feels like a Joker-esque moment. Totally. Joker was inspired by by this movie big time. Um, it's iconic. And, and when the camera pulls back far enough, it almost feels like that collage in the background of the black and white audience could have been in the in like the MoMA or something. Like it mm. it's that iconic and it's also sort of like culturally of that moment. Um you could almost see it as in similarly that will um I forget which which Woody Allen movie it is. It might have been eight and a half. You, you know the famous photo from the Vietnam War mm-hmm. of uh, a US soldier po- or a, a soldier pointing a gun at a Vietnamese Yes. Pointing it at his head. And it's just this gut wrenching, tragic image. But there's a moment in this Woody Allen movie where that is printed on a wall, very large, like as a permanent installation. And this like conversational, lighthearted conversational dialogue is happening in front of that. Um, that's that iconic image. The scene you're referring to 
with Rupert in front of that wall of black and white audience feels image driven in that same way where it's referencing, you know, media saturated culture. And then the soundscape of the audience in this weird manic kind of applause is laugh, almost like laugh track crafting applause. I would agree with you. It is harrowing (laughs) with an underscore. (laughs) Well, and I guess that's why when they have Jerry Langford in their custody or, you know, kidnapped, I guess after all those moments, it feels like I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. On one level, I still believe that Rupert really just wants to get on the show. Like, I don't think he wants to hurt Jerry. But Masha, like, Masha seems like the wild card. Like, she seems even more... And, like, when they put the sweater on Jerry, that like, the sleeves are cut. And they talk about how good it looks. Like, it seems like she's even farther gone yeah. than Rupert. And that, that was uncomfortable making. Well, she's got a whole deep history, complicated history of her own like you know she's definitely got mommy and daddy issues she's been locked up she's high society in new york she's very wealthy she's been locked up through her whole life in and out of you know therapist's office she's never had a boyfriend and she she invests all of her attention her love her her devotion to this one person that she should never have access to but right here we are and you know he's He's finally in her possession, and we just get to we- watch that play out in the weirdest way mm. with the most perfect actor for this role. Like, oh, Sandra, man, yes. Sandra Bernhardt. She is, she's an art, she was like an art, art star. I don't, I don't think she was around during, in the like the uh, Studio 54 days, but or the Warhol days, but she was definitely, she would like hang, she hung out with Madonna in the early 80s. Right. She was just this kind of fashion society art girl and she's always been you know i think she was part of like literal literary society too and she's just kind of like weird (laughs) and it's a shame that she didn't do other stuff besides this so much because she was so brilliant in it you know sometimes during the day i'll just be i'll do the simplest things you know i'll be taking a bath and i say to myself i wonder if jerry's taking a bath right now oh man her actually having him tied up had the feeling of like a cat that had been uh, hunting a bird for years. And finally the bird is like (laughs) tied to the ground and the cat's just so like, I don't even know what to do with you now that I have you. Yeah. And that sort of, uh, she even says something about like the line of, I have always been told to like be in control, be in control. But now I just like, I want to just go crazy right now. And I want it to be out of control. And wouldn't that be fun if just me and you could, uh, just do whatever we wanted right now. And it is a really great monologue and really creepy with all of those candles candles. behind them. Oh, it's so creepy. It's so creepy. It's very eighties. She's so volatile. You just feel like she's going to snap and just like, right. You know, put a dagger right into his neck at any moment. But I love that his face is stone. He doesn't even (laughs) flinch. Also the movie taking its time. What does she sing that? Is it the Ray Charles song back again? She does. She sings. Yeah, (laughs) she sings it. A pretty good singing voice. Right. Luxuriate (laughs) in that moment of the painful agony of her just like singing a soulful song to him while he just looks straight (laughs) ahead. I love during this whole time, the lawyers and the execs at the show are trying to figure out what to do. And you have these lines like, let's just record them, just record them, 
and we just won't air it. And the lawyer's like, you're going to do it because it's, you know, Jerry Langford's life or whatever. I just loved all those interactions and the frenzy that they were in and trying to figure out what to do. Right. And even the FBI guys that they don't care about right. the, the famous guy. <laughs> they don't care about the TV show. They just have protocols. Listen, <laughs> and, and, you know, you oh, you've been to Russia and you've been to China like that. You know, they're just they've got one job to do this man on the air. Do you believe this? This lunatic is threatening Jerry's life and you're not going to put him on the air? Harry, Harry, let me handle Gentlemen, let's not get too excited. I don't think you understand. He makes it to the recording and we see him take the stage and leave. And I at least had a moment where I felt robbed because this entire movie, there's the question of, is he actually funny? Right, right, right. Like, can he actually, can he do this and actually pull it off? And for a moment, you feel robbed. Right, because they don't give you the benefit of hearing the the act right away. Right. But I want to I wanna highlight one moment before that happens, when he first gets to the studio, and he's kind of wandering around, and he asks a cameraman, because <laughs> he's so far gone, he's a sociopath, he thinks that everybody there knows exactly who he is. Right. They, uh-huh. they, he can't imagine that they have their own internal lives. And he walks up to a cameraman, and he says... I'm the king. And the cameraman <laughs> says, oh, hello, your highness, or whatever. <laughs> that gave me the, the le- legitimately only like big laugh that I have in this movie, even though it's ostensibly supposed to be a comedy, but you're not laughing. No, you're not. Number 47, uh, hello, I'm the king. What? The king. What can I do for your highness? <laughs> really, I'm the king. Oh, yes, sir, you're dressing backstage. The guy that, I guess he was supposed to be a guest on the show. He was like selling a book. Yeah, the novelist, which was another kind of a red herring because for a moment, for me, I don't know if you guys had this same experience. For when when that guy was trying to get through and he was a novelist is supposed to be a guest on the show and you can't tell for a moment, but maybe he's trying to pull one over on them too. And that yeah, that's maybe what I Jerry's story is just one in a million of a lot of different people that try to, mm-hmm. you know, hoodwink Jerry Langford's show, mm-hmm. which is kind of a funny uh, misdirect. Yeah, it was it was strange. I wasn't sure what it was about. But he gets the recording and then he runs to Rita. Again, back to prove to his high school sweetheart that, look, I've made yes. it. Watch this. Turns on the TV and then goes into this monologue. And it's one of these things, it was constant mixed emotions because you almost want him to do well. And you're also like, this is a horrible way to have gone about this. And also like, how can he possibly be funny? Like he's, he's not in his right mind, but he, and like, you think, oh, is he never going to leave the stage? <laughs> is he just going to keep telling jokes for three hours? Like he <laughs> says goodbye and he actually does okay and I don't know, what was the feeling you guys had at the end of that monologue? And it's like, he kind of did it. Well, it's still ambiguous because at, you know, first he just take he starts telling his hacky jokes and the crowd is laughing because they're there to laugh. Mm-hmm. And it almost sounds like a laugh track, but, but whatever, he's telling his hacky jokes and it's, it's late night TV and jokes are hacky and maybe, you know, he's kind of a par for the course late night comedian. And then he starts getting into the darker stuff. He starts basically spilling the abuse, the the, the tragic abuse that he's taken for his whole life um, at the hands of his parents, at the hands of his peers, and that he's basically been beaten up and abandoned and abused his whole life and making comic relief of it. And the audience continues to laugh as though he's telling jokes about being from Clifton, New Jersey. And that's where it starts to get ambiguous. Oh, wow. Is this actually just still his fantasy? Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like I could tell he's not lying. Like he's making fun of his life. And 
again, you don't laugh out loud, but you know, he says things like his mom, her alcohol was 2% blood. <laughs> right. And like these, these one-liners and it's like, okay, he actually has some mind to make a joke. Like it's, you know, it's not that he's just totally flat, not making any jokes and just being awkward. Like he did the thing. He did it. Yeah. And you know, when they tested her, they found out that her alcohol had 2% blood. <laughs> Here's the difference between a director telling you what to think versus letting you think it yourself is that there is a different way to shoot this where once he gets a little darker, talking about throwing up and talking about the abuse of his dad, there is a way to shoot it where the audience actually, like you cut to an audience member and they start not laughing as much and they start feeling sorry for him, Mm. kind of cueing you as the viewer of the movie to be like, oh yeah, we're supposed to also be like, wow, this is getting, uh, he's really talking about his own life. This is really sad. But instead, the laugh track maintains perfectly throughout the whole thing, just like it would in a late night show. And it forced me to sit there and go like, man, he's talking about real abuse. I'm feeling sorry for him, but while I still hear this laugh track, and I think that's brilliant because it doesn't tell me what to think, and I'm left hearing laughter with my ears, but feeling, oh boy, the heaviness yeah. of the moment. It subverts your expectation, and you you end up being you know appreciating it for that reason. It's almost like I don't know. I, I think it's it's kind of like how Quentin Tarantino in his movies uses music ironically instead of u- mm-hmm. using music to direct your emotions the way that they would like sort of presume to be directed. Like think about the scene in I don't know Reservoir Dogs if you've seen that movie where a character is literally getting his ear cut off and you're hearing like the greatest hits of the greatest soul hits of the seventies. <laughs> like this is a brilliant use of music or sound to subvert your expectations and make you kind of reconsider your emotional experience at the time you're going through it. I think that's exactly what we're getting with this, with the audience laugh track as well. And then at the end, he says the line better to be King for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. And I guess he obviously knows He's going to jail for what he did. Right. So he understands it was just, he gets one night to do this. But I'm curious, like, what is the second part of that phrase about? Yeah, like, schmuck for a lifetime. It's a very sort of, like, it, that that expression is very borscht belt, you know, old school New York comedian. Hmm. And it's the truest thing he says in the entire movie. And it just, hmm. it underscores his intentions, his motivations for this whole this whole thing. This whole endeavor was about getting to this one moment and being king for king for night which i end up i think ends up being the title of his autobiography right that he yes. writes <laughs> right. in jail yes. you know cuz he he's somebody who feels like the schmuck every day of his life he's been the sh- the schmuck for his whole his whole life and this was his chance um to take it and 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 turn it just for a night yeah it actually showed some self-awareness like the most self-aware thing he said throughout the movie it was realizing yeah, like hey exactly i actually really need this one night yes but look i figure it this way better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime <laughs> but after this yes as it gets towards the end of the movie <laughs> It's not real, right? That's my question. We get this whole montage where he audiobiography from jail. Like I was thinking like the book, the whole he's let out early. He does, you know, he gets all these deals. He's talking in front of people. 
I had the thought of, okay, this is, we're going to cut back to him just laughing at himself in jail or doing like a stand-up comedy in the prison. Right. But I wanted to get your guys' thoughts. Was it real? Was it not? Does it matter? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I, I think that the ambiguity, <laughs> the ambiguity is is the story. You know, like it's, mm. you know, if you really kind of want to get meta about it, um, that is exactly what a movie is. A movie is just a retelling of a reality that never happened. Hmm. And so we, it can be whatever we as the viewer want it to be. And if we want to believe that Jerry tri- or that Rupert Pupkin uh, triumphed overall, and that's what we need to carry with us after the movie is over, then great, we get to do that. Um, if you want to believe that this is all just a, dep- a dark, internalized depiction of what's going on inside the m- the mind of a rapidly degenerating, mentally ill man, then we get to have that too, <laughs> if you want it. <laughs> Adam, Stephen, what did you want to believe? I mean, you want it to you want to believe it's real-ish, but for me, thirty seconds into it, I was like, "Wow, that's something." <laughs> and then the rest of the time, I was like, "Nope." He's in a jail cell, totally talking to him. And so whether I wanted to or not, I did believe the reality was that that didn't happen, that he was in jail playing that in his head. You know you know what I ended up thinking during the that whole scene, the sort of like epilogue? I, I just suddenly stopped and remembered that Donald Trump became the president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are in reality. All right. Well, Adam, when we get to the end of talking about a movie we rate the movie on a scale of zero to five something for this one i think we should do zero to five demo tapes the one that he records in his mother's basement i don't know nate why don't you go first i'll go second and, and adam you can tell us the, the correct rating uh, when, when it's your <laughs> okay. right you correct us at the end okay yes. so i'm going to say i'm going to give this movie i'm gonna say three and a half <laughs> tapes and here's why this movie is really really well done it is like i understand how if you were studying film like this is a good one to see it is cringy a lot (laughs) it is slower than maybe some people would like it gets knocked down some because i never want to watch this movie again (laughs) (laughs) like i really like once was fun but Adam, you said you had watched this movie like 12 times or so. I Yeah. That is great for you. That is not <laughs> that is not something that that might mean it was more of an emotional experience for you than it is for me. Like I can sort of still have some detachment from it. Oh yeah. It I went on an emotional trip with this movie and I didn't it will I think this movie will stay with me for a while. And I think that's a, a great thing. Like I think the movie did its job. Do I sometimes, when I see comedy listed under a movie, do I want to laugh more? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> but it is, it is a very good movie. Three and a half is my total trying to be somewhat unbiased on it, but it gets knocked down because rewatchability for me is zero. <laughs> yeah, when comedy is both in the movie title and the genre, you think more it should be comedy. But for me... I'm going to give it a four on its own merits. I mean, it's it tells an incredible story. I will not want to watch this soon, <laughs> but maybe one day, you know, I think to return. I think if I had seen this at a younger age, it definitely would have left an impression, you know, maybe especially in high school, considering the connection. Um, I find it would be tough to recommend to people my age and younger. I, I don't know, like, I would really have to know the person can 
do it, like can actually watch it and understand what's happening. So because it's hard to recommend and my rewatchability will be one to two in the coming decades, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a four. And uh, I will say, I mean, Robert De Niro, I've seen him in obviously lots of things, but his performance is pretty amazing. Like, I don't think I've seen him in a character like this. And sometimes I would forget that it's Robert De Niro. Oh, yeah. I have to say, it's the, it's the best Robert De Niro, in my opinion, I have ever seen in any movie. Yeah, and it's just like he was Rupert Pupkin for the time that I was watching this movie. And I, I'd never, that never pulled me out. Like, he never did anything to make it seem. Although there was a one scene, I think, where Jerry Langford, like, shakes his head in one of his fantasies. Like, <laughs> slowly rocks it back and forth. And I wasn't sure what that was about. But... I'm going to give it a, a four four demo tapes. So, Adam, what what will you say? Excellent. Well, without question, five out of five demo tapes for me. <laughs> it, it, you make an interesting point, Nate, that you appreciate that this is a, a good or even great movie, but you never want to watch it again. <laughs> there are two movies that I can say that about. One, both of which I think are absolute masterworks. One is Synecdoche, New York mm. by Charlie Kaufman with starting <laughs> Philip. Seymour Hoffman a number of years ago. Mm. So grueling, so gut-wrenching. I, I watched it once. I fell apart emotionally. I'll never be able to go through it again. Um, and the other is Paul Thomas Anderson movie, The Master, the one about sort of a uh, L. Ron Hubbard Scientology figure. Mm. Both of those were so gut-wrenching to watch that I will never do it again, but can appreciate their greatness. Mm. The King of Comedy, like I mentioned, I can keep an, emo- keep a, a, an emotional detachment from it to the point where I still get a lot of entertainment value and a lot of appreciation for the craft which was made. And I think it even gets some bonus demo tapes from me because it almost ruined Scorsese's career because it was, <laughs> I've always wanted there to exist a class at the, you know, at some, at the college level or something called failures of the masters. Mm. Um, Ooh, that'd be good. You know, I feel like it'd be so fascinating to see like all of these greats, whatever medium there was, and you study the ones that w- were considered failures um, for whatever reason. And I think that, you know, now in retrospect, it's considered by a lot of people to be one of his greatest um, movies. But the fact that it was considered a failure at some point um, gives that extra credit for me. So I'm going to say, if I'm allowed, six out of five demo tapes. <laughs> You are the guest. You are absolutely yes. allowed to break the system. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yes, and I don't think we've ever gone above five. So there you go. First time. <laughs> Six out of five. Six out of five. Adam, thank you so much for coming on, discussing the king of comedy. Obviously, you are everywhere. If you, if anybody wants to see what you're doing, should they follow you? Where, where should we point them? My company is it's, is called Sandwich at sandwich.co. Um, my name is my Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Something similar is my Instagram account, but <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. People, people find it. You've been doing yeah. some podcasts. Right? You are in the all-consuming podcast, right? Yeah, all-consuming is 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 my new podcast. We've done we're about nine episodes in, I think. Um, it's where me, my friend Noah Kalina and I both similarly fixated on products that are targeted to us on Instagram. We we pick <laughs> so one good. product per week and we and we buy it and we review it. <laughs> And uh, that's that's all consuming at allconsuming.show. Uh, like and subscribe. And then the other one <laughs> is my 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 boys uh, Scott and Merlin. Uh, you look nice today as a podcast I've been doing for I think twelve years at this point. You had a hiatus in between. But... Yeah, there was a long hiatus there. But we, once the when, when the pandemic happened, uh, we sort of sprung it up again, and now we we still do it. 
Yes, it's wonderful. And I have to say, your all-consuming show is hilarious. I listened to the <laughs> the Magic Spoon and the Ember Cup. And when your co-host, Noah, said that a single egg on his farm costs $20 to produce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I laughed at Isn't out that loud. the best thing ever? <laughs> that was hilarious. I would say, I don't know if you're taking requests, but... I am. The Hollow Pillow would be a very interesting one to do. Oh, man. Steven, Steven said, yeah, I got this pillow. It's full of buckwheat. You can <laughs> remove and add buckwheat for your own thing. It's going to be great. Oh, wow. How long did that last, Steven, in your house before you returned it? 36 hours. <laughs> <laughs> this does not seem like a good pillow, but uh, you know what? We'll try it out. <laughs> well, I would love to hear it. Well, again, Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. This was a real blast for me. Thank you. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode with special guest Adam Lissagord. Don't forget, you can follow us at Movies on the Side everywhere, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget, we have bonus episodes every week if you support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash movies on the side. And this week, we ask our special guest, Adam Lissagord, what does he think about mayo on french fries and his favorite movie of the last 10 years? If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And like we always say... Better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime.